Chigoe, an Onoe podcast series focusing on current matters in the Mi'kmaq community. Gwe Akjalasi, Nin Delawisi Sean Doak. Hello and welcome. My name is Sean Doak. I am a proud member of the Lennox Island First Nation and communications officer with Onoe. This is Chigoe. I'm your host, and today I am joined by my colleague and senior negotiator with Olnoy, Tracy Cutcliffe. We're going to be talking about some of the history behind the Mi'kmaq Treaty Protective Fisheries, starting with the Marshall decision, and how things got to where they are today. Thank you very much for joining me, Tracy. Thank you, Sean. Great to be here. We have a lot to cover, but first off, I think a good starting point is what was the context of the Marshall decision, and when was that released by the Supreme Court of Canada? Well, I'm happy to talk about that decision. I think that everybody's pretty aware of what a hugely important decision it was for the Mi'kmaq and actually for the Mi'kmaq, the Malzid, and the Pasamaquoddy in the Maritimes. So if you go back to the beginning, in 1993, Donald Marshall Jr. went fishing for eels in Palmquette Harbor. He harvested a little over 460 pounds of eels, sold them for a little over $700, and he was subsequently charged. He was charged for three different offenses by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, for fishing without a license, for fishing during a closed season with prohibited nets, and also for selling uh, eels without a license. Donald Marshall Jr. absolutely admitted to to the charges, but argued that he had the right to do so in accordance with the 1760-61 Peace and Friendship Treaties. And in that particular treaty, it was established that the Mi'kmaq would have the right to sell, trade, and barter through um, facilities, we'll say, that were called truck houses. And that's what they were referenced in uh, in that particular treaty. So it allowed for the Mi'kmaq in that treaty, which is, you know, a, a pretty important document between the British Crown and the treaty, for them to be able to sell goods through these truck houses. So in that particular case, Donald Marshall Jr. Um, lost his uh, case at the trial and the appeal uh, court in Nova Scotia. And it was, you know, primarily can be summed up as the both um, decisions recognized that that was something that was included in the treaties, but they also said that, you know, the truck houses no longer existed. So therefore, the right didn't exist. And that's kind of the best way to summarize it. Um, but when it went to the Supreme Court of Canada, they overturned the Court of Appeal decision. And, you know, very rightly so, made it quite clear that you needed to consider all the other evidence, the extrinsic evidence around um, how that treaty was negotiated and what the intentions were of the parties in signing that agreement. And in summary, the court found that despite the fact that truck houses didn't exist anymore, it did not mean that the right didn't exist anymore. So the Supreme Court of Canada overturned the conviction and affirmed that the treaty right um, to sell, trade, and barter in pursuit of necessaries of life, which they kind of defined as or determined to be uh, in support of a moderate livelihood, that that did exist and that, in fact, Donald Marshall Jr. was protected in his activities 
because he had that treaty right to do exactly what he did, which was fishing for um, eels in this instance uh, to support himself and his family. What happened after the Supreme Court had overturned that conviction? Well, there's a number of uh, things that happened. Of course, the that decision was was met with, you know, obviously and for good reason, really positive um, response by the uh, Mi'kmaq and the Maliseet and the Passamaquoddy in the region. But one of the things that also happened was there was a fairly immediate conflict on the waters. Um, there were Mi'kmaq who, having after you know centuries, finally gotten. Uh, the kind of affirmation from the highest court in the land that, in fact, that right did still exist and they did have the opportunity to exercise it, um, would have uh, started to exercise that right. It was met with conflict, which, you know, was both dangerous and and frightening from uh, the non-Indigenous fishers, not so much in PEI, although there certainly was conflict, but it didn't come to the... um, uh, level that it reached in uh, certainly in New Brunswick. So that all happened after the decision. And um, that's kind of important context because something that did also follow the decision was uh, a, de- a motion was made to the Supreme Court of Canada by one of the groups that had intervened in the original decision. And that group was the West Nova um, Fishermen's Association. And that that's commonly referred to as Marshall too. And so what happened after the Marshall II, not necessarily decision, but the the clarification? So with um, Marshall II, as it's referenced, it was a motion that was um, uh, taken by uh, this group from Nova Scotia, the West Nova Fishermen's Association, and they they asked for... uh, for lack of a better description, they were looking for the Supreme Court of Canada to overturn, really, the original decision. Um, and uh, understandably, the the court did reject the motion. Um, but in a very unusual move, the court, when it rejected the motion, and normally when the Supreme Court of Canada rejects um, uh rejects an appeal or a motion, then you're provided with very limited um, response from the Supreme Court other than just the bare decision. In this case, which was really unusual, the Supreme Court of Canada did provide additional um, confirmation of the original decision and other, some would say, clarifications. Um, One of the things that people have, I think, relied on in interpreting Marshall too, and we've seen that certainly in more recent um, political and other responses, is uh, looking at Marshall too as somehow having changed the decision. And where they focus their attention is in Marshall too, the reasons for the rejection of the motion, the Supreme Court of Canada did confirm that the minister fisheries and oceans, the federal government, Canada, does have the right to regulate the treaty protected fishery. But this is not, that was not new because they were in a sense confirming that, yes, that is the case, but similar to what they had made clear in the original Marshall decision, the uh, minister in Canada 
might have that right, but they only have that right if they can justify it in accordance with a fairly clearly established test that was established under a decision called Badger. And that uh, justification test is, can be summed up as, you know, first of all, is there a valid legislative objective to the regulation? So if, if you, minister, want to limit the um, Mi'kmaq, and I'll focus on the Mi'kmaq <laughs> at this point, if you want to limit the Mi'kmaq uh, treaty, protected fishery, the, the fishery in accordance with the treaty, which is protected under the Constitution of Canada, then you have to have a valid legislative objective. So for instance, um, conservation would be a valid legislative objective. So if that's a yes, and not many people would argue that conservation is a pretty valid objective. But the second part of the analysis starts to consider the trust relationship um, and the responsibilities of the Crown with respect to Aboriginal people. So the honor of the Crown needs to be upheld with regard to any kind of legislation. So, and when you're talking about the Crown upholding its, its honor to the Aboriginal people, you know, you look to the Constitution and Section 35 of the Constitution, the arguably the highest law in the land, you know, clearly protects existing Aboriginal and treaty rights. So then you kind of start considering if once you get through those kind of considerations, the questions that then come up. So, you know, does that uh, regulation infringe the treaty right as little as possible in order to achieve its goals? Does that regulation involve some kind of expropriation of the right? If it does, then, you know, has compensation been considered? Has the Aboriginal group in question been consulted? And that's a really important point because the uh, Mi'kmaq have never been consulted on regulations that that purport to limit their right based on either seasons or other kind of rules or regulations. So that's really, really important. So the court didn't make a determination as to whether um, the Crown, through the minister, had justified the regulation. They were simply asked whether the right existed and they determined it was and that Donald Marshall was exercising that right in accordance or exercising his right that was protected by the treaty and protected by the Constitution. So that piece is was not determined by the court, but the rules are very clear that they have to justify any kind of infringement on the right. I know there was a lot of tension after the Marshall decision, and I've heard of something called the Marshall Response Initiative. Could you elaborate on what that consisted of and the short and long-term responses from the federal government that kind of followed the Marshall decision? So there was a response, an immediate response by the federal government. And really, with the, uh, the, the conflict on the water and the uh, continuing to escalate kind of violence on the water, the federal government came to the table with two, essentially two different streams. There was a short-term response and a long-term response. And those were the responsibilities were the, for those were divided between the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the Department of Indian Northern Affairs Canada, which is now CERNA, Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada. And the, the mandates were different. So the short-term response, which was led by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, was, you can best describe it as the mandate to um, 
go uh, deal with the First Nations and uh, negotiate short-term arrangements that would essentially buy time and secure peace on the water for immediate purposes. So those short-term responses led by DFO resulted in um, what were uh, called Marshall Agreements. So it was the Marshall Response Initiative uh, led by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, they appointed a negotiator. The negotiator met with uh, First Nation leaderships that were interested or willing to uh, secure agreements. And one of the things that's very important to remember is the agreements that were negotiated in the region were completely without prejudice to the treaty right. So in PEI's instance, uh, the First Nations here did sign Marshall uh, Response Initiative Agreements. And with those agreements, you can, I think, best summarize it by saying that what the First Nations leadership agreed to was um, to receive what would have been a really significant um, investments and opportunity to expand their access to the existing commercial fishery, to uh, get um, access to resources, to uh, expand their fleet, build capacity within uh, their, their own communities for people to begin to um, enter into the fishery. So they were very beneficial agreements in that sense. And both the uh, Mi'kmaq First Nations and PEI have been very successful in growing and securing a real serious place in the commercial fishery, in large part by the increased capacity and access that they received under those agreements. But it's also equally important to remember that in no way did the uh, councils um, sign away any access based on right. It was, we'll say, uh, agreeing to put the rights-based fishery on a shelf for a very the short time-limited period of those agreements, for which at any time they could pull those rights down and they could implement their fishery based on So right. they, they still had them? Absolutely, yeah, and never ever um, gave those up. But those agreements were very beneficial and both First Nations um, have been able to grow their commercial enterprises based on those agreements. So that would have been the short-term response. And then the long-term response was a mandate that was provided to what is now CERNA and was then INAC to engage in negotiations and discussions with the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet Pasmaquoddy, well, try and continue to speak uh, with respect to the Mi'kmaq, um, to start to resolve um, the long-term issues around implementation of rights, including implementation of treaty rights and how that should happen. And those negotiations have been ongoing to various degrees since um, the Marshall decision. And the, um, the long-term discussions have continued the, one of the difficulties is the short-term response effectively ended in 2007. I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good kind of question because it's really a critical piece of what's gotten the Mi'kmaq to where they currently are in the region with respect to the treaty-protected fishery. So those agreements which provided... 
um, benefits to the First Nations and therefore were um, the kind of agreements that, you know, it was reasonable to look to enter into those agreements because there was something beneficial for the First Nations and it helped them grow their, their existing fisheries. But those short-term uh, agreements expired in 2007 when the Marshall Response Initiative, led by DFO, expired. So one of the um, issues is that the Mi'kmaq, in good faith, have continued to fish in accordance with um, the regulated fishery with the understanding that both parties were committed to uh, negotiations that would lead to uh, an agreed implementation of the treaty protected fishery, the self-regulated fishery. And unfortunately, from 2007 until what we all saw happen uh, in last fall, in 2020, starting in Nova Scotia, is that there was understandably, I think, frustrations that built over those 13 years when effectively nothing had substantively happened on the implementation of the right from a negotiated perspective, despite many years of efforts by the First Nations leadership to encourage the federal government to get to the table and meaningfully negotiate that space that they need to enter into a self-regulated fishery. Um, but that didn't happen. And then what also didn't happen is there were no further goodwill investments by the uh, you know, federal government to continue to support the First Nations in building their um, commercial fishery as well. So those two, combination of two things, certainly led to understandable frustrations, which I think we all saw bubble up in Nova Scotia last fall. So we talked about the Marshall decision and what came after that. You mentioned uh, the treaty and how that applies to the Marshall decision. So, you know, for those who may not know, what is a treaty? Oh, that's a great question, and I probably should have started there. Um, I, like a treaty is a it's a very solemn agreement between nations, and it's really important to say that it is between nations. So, if I'm speaking about the treaties in the Maritimes, which are referred to as the Peace and Friendship Treaties or the Covenant Chain of Treaties, because there were a number of treaties that were signed between the British Crown and the Mi'kmaq and the Maliseet and the Passamaquoddy in this region over a period of time from 1725 onward. Um, those treaties were um, agreements between equal parties, and that's really important to recognize. This was not the British Crown signing an agreement out of the goodness of their heart, <laughs> they <laughs> they needed the Mi'kmaq. The Mi'kmaq were a really important player with respect to where the British crown wanted to be for its authority in this region. Um, the Mi'kmaq were still, you know, very much aligned with the French. The British did not have um, complete control over the region. They needed the Mi'kmaq in order to, you know, continue where they wanted to go yeah. with respect to this region and the country. So those agreements were signed by parties for which there were mutual benefits 
and mutual obligations. This is not a one-sided agreement. It's reciprocal. Very. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah. We're very reciprocal. And the Mi'kmaq, you know, were important in, in to the British in, in being able to secure their control of the region. And I'd, I'd like to say that, you know, if the British Crown had not signed those uh, treaties at that time, you know, there is no guarantee that they would have been able to continue to express their jurisdiction in the region. Um, and in large part, without the treaties that were signed here and then in other places across the country, um, there is no guarantee that we would have gotten to the place this country is now with the constitution that we have now. These are um, treaties, they are agreements that are the foundation for the relationship between the uh, settlers and the Aboriginal people of this country, and without them, then you may not have had the country that we have today. They're at the foundation of this country. Right. That's an interesting thought, the treaties being at the foundation of this country. I think it's actually so interesting and eye-opening that we'll leave it there for today just to let that one marinate and pick it up where we left off in our next episode. So, Will Allen, thank you again for joining me today, Tracy, and I look forward to having you back. Oh, thank you for having me, Sean. It was a pleasure. And to those who are listening, I hope this was as educational for you as it was for me. Stay tuned for our next episode on understanding the Epiquit Mi'kmaq Treaty Protective Fisheries. And if you want to continue learning in the meantime, be sure to visit our website and fisheries page at ulnaway.ca slash fisheries, where you'll find additional information and resources. Wilaliok Nogama. Thank you. All my relations. To find out more about Ulnaway and the Mi'kmaq rights reconciliation process, visit ulnaway.ca.